Listeners, welcome to the 96th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How we doing today, Brian? Number 96. It's a big one. Closing in on 100. And just like last time, we got a special thing going on, Dan. What is it? That's right. So we are in the midst of a theme month. That is where we take five consecutive episodes on a topic or theme or subgenre. This month we are discussing animated films, specifically all of the films that we discuss here, well at least all of our feature selections, are pre-1990 non-Disney animated films. And Brian has branded this Anna Month. That's the catchy slogan, the catchy label, Anna Month. And last week we kicked that off with a off-brand Tolkien extravaganza. Today, we are discussing the oldest surviving animated film that is 1926's The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, a German film directed by Lati. I think that's how you say it. It might be different in German. It's the nickname that's short for Charlotte, Lati Reiniger. But before we dive into that, I actually prepped something special today brian yeah i'm looking through your notes here so last week got pretty epic obviously we had to cram in all of tolkien uh be grateful we didn't pull in the silmarillion but this episode is going to be epic in its own way because dan as he always does has dug into the context and i think he's got a history lesson prepared that's right so i found a textbook entitled a new history of animation by Maureen Funris. I've read plenty of animation and animation history uh, on my own time in the past. You know, it's Animonth. I figured I'd dive in. So I found this textbook. I read about 100 pages of it to get up until 1926's The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And I kind of assembled some themes and, and narratives on the birth of animation. I want to talk about the birth of animation. Okay. We're going to start in the pre-film era just kind of talk through what how did animation as as we come to know it today or at least as we came to know it in the studio days of hollywood the looney tunes era the snow white and the seven dwarfs era how did we come to that shape of animation and i selected eight specific short films that i thought were good milestones or lenses into important developments. So I'll try to keep this fairly light while still kind of having some interesting conversation here. Okay. The birth of animation leading into the dis- discussion of the adventures of Prince Ahmed. So before we get started, I guess, Brian, how much have you explored the early history of, of animation? I am fairly acquainted with the early history of animation and film more broadly. To any newcomers, I did major in film studies in college. Perhaps not the most lucrative life path, but a lot of this stuff is like day one film history course stuff. Not all of it. I definitely learned some things from Dan the last couple days. But certainly we talked uh, George Moyes, for instance, and 
a few others. And notably, I did see Prince Ahmed before. It was featured in the 2010 William & Mary Global Film Festival. So this was my second viewing. Very cool. Yeah. I had never seen it before. So the, it was an ad adventure of my own to check out the adventures. I think it's adventures, plural. I think so, yeah. I've been probably saying it wrong. I When I've been typing my notes, I've been typing it frequently wrong. So I'll, I'm sure I'll get it wrong three more times this episode. Uh, but one thing we'll see is actually the, the adventures of Prince Ahmed is actually less in kind of a any specific trend of animation. It was kind of a one-off art film in, in some ways that not necessarily in line with the developments that would uh, come to define animation. But we'll, let's, let's talk to kind of how we got. So uh, this, this animation textbook that I read had an opening definition of animation, at least uh, how it uses it. And I think this kind of aligns with how we think of it. And the, the definition was, animation is a term used to describe a broad range of practices in which the illusion of motion is created through the incremental movement of forms displayed sequentially as a motion picture. And I think there's a lot to unpack in there, um, but I think the illusion of motion is kind of the key thing. It's like the cool thing about animation is it's drawings, cartoons, often, not always, and you see a bunch of sub-drawings over a span of time and your eyes think you are really seeing that thing. So... It's kind of taking film as a cinematic construction to its extreme because every single frame is created. And Yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, even so-called live action is animated in a sense because it too is a series of images. Right. You know, played back. They don't move on their own, but played at speed they do. That's true, yeah, yeah. But you're right, it's getting down to the bare bones and having to build it from the ground up yourself. Well, I, I think you're right, though, that um, especially we'll, we'll see here that like a lot of the very early film animation was basically supplemental special effects to, you know, these one real short films. And I think even today, you know, we don't necessarily think of, for example, the Marvel movies or the Star Wars movies as animated films. But I mean, there's animation is so tied up with live action special effects that it it's it is all kind of its own continuum i guess not necessarily 100 percent discrete one way or the other anyways the kind of precursor to animation before film existed it was pretty common for there to be entertainers that used some sort of trick in the uh, presentation of some show that you know we would kind of understand to match some of the mechanics of animation today. So for example, a shadow puppet, a big one was uh, magic lantern shows. And uh, this is artists or entertainers would make slides of some sort or pieces of art that they would project onto some wall or some sheet. And this is just kind of something that's happened throughout history, you know, like uh, creating something and, and projecting it via light or, or uh, somehow getting something to display on a wall or a surface with, with light. And the people who do this are often called lanternists, which I think is a pretty cool name for an occupation, being a lanternist. And I think um, a lot of what these magic lantern shows did are kind of analogous to like a, a magic show or uh, you don't really see vaudeville as much anymore. But like these people who would kind of put on these 
entertainment bits where they bring in all sorts of different visual gimmicks to kind of entertain large audiences. My favorite example of a Magic Lantern show in pop culture is the Strangers Like Me song in the Disney Tarzan when the porters are teaching him about civilization using the Magic Lantern. That's awesome, yeah. Around 1800, there was one particular trend of doing spooky Magic Lantern shows that were called Phantasmagorias. And that was, again, right around 1800 that those were a trend in Europe. The the next kind of step towards animation as we come to know it is the zoetrope, which is a little device that was really popular in the mid-1800s with, I think, the upper class. And basically what this is, it's a little thing that has a kind of a loop via images where it will have some number of frames, maybe maybe a dozen or 16 or 20 frames of images that when you spin it, um, it, it's kind of in a cylindrical shape. It will create an illusion of motion because there is like carefully placed slits in the zoetrope, in the cylinder, such that it, it tricks your eyes into thinking that you're seeing those frames in continuous motion. So it's basically creating the illusion of animation, but just via this little handheld gimmick device. So Brian, have you ever seen a zoetrope before or used a zoetrope? Yes, so I've seen these set up at like children's science museums. They tend to take up space. I mean, they, they don't always have to. It's a drum that's got drawings or some other kind of figure depiction on the inside that can then spin. And as you say, you look in through a slot. So yes, I've seen them before is the short answer. I guess not necessarily handheld, but could be like you said, like the size of a small piece of furniture or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a more sophisticated version of like a flip book. So I don't know if you ever had flip books when you were a kid, Brian, but it, uh, I had my parents got me one one time and it's they're pretty nifty. It's like a book like a mine was like a square, like three inches by three inches. And you flip it like almost like you're flipping through a deck of cards. And, you know, as you're going through them real fast, it looks like you're seeing they're they're designed in such a way with the pictures that as you flip through them real fast, it looks like something is moving. And then I've seen other versions of that. Like uh, there's a popular kids book series um, or a kids book author named uh Dave Pilkey or Dav Pilkey, I don't know how you pronounce it, but he did the cap he does the Captain Underpants books and they have like mini flipbook sections in those. I always loved those. Yeah, I was very big into Captain Underpants and what I have tried to explain to people subsequently is it was not about the toilet humor. It was the creativity in the books and the flipbook illustrations was part of that. They were also featured in Animorphs, for instance. But I just really liked the storyline that it was about two kids who wrote stories and then found a way to bring the stories to life. Have you seen any of the Captain Underpants movies? Have they made a sequel? Oh. I still need to watch the first one. I think I'm getting it uh, mixed up with Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Maybe there's only okay. one. Yeah, Diary of a Wimpy Kid was a little later, although I guess the Captain Underpants movie just came out. But gotcha. uh, I know they had Weird Al do the theme song, so I have heard that. And speaking of Weird Al, the, the Weird Al trailer dropped today. Did you see that yet? 
Yep, I've had about four people send it to me. <laughs> but I am excited. Definitely going to check it out. It looks like it is as much a parody of biopics as it is a biopic itself. So it'll be interesting. Could be up our alley. Could be the new walk hard. Who knows? I think Weird Al is involved with the creation of it. So hopefully we'll do him at least some honor. Mm-hmm. But uh, an argument that this book that I read made is that the real kind of turning point that got us towards animation as we know it today, even more so than these little gimmicky things and magic lantern shows was everything that was happening with the industrial revolution. One being making it easier to get things printed, which basically made comic book artists and uh, sequential art creators uh, of all sorts, a much more viable and prevalent thing. So you had a lot more people toying with like early comics or creating illustrations for books. And so this kind of had people really thinking about um, the notion of what is the implied motion from one picture to the next picture. So really thinking about like how you have motion suggested from one frame to another frame. And then another thing that would be more relevant towards stop motion, but also kind of has us in the realm of taking things that are not alive and figuring out how you make it look like it is alive is creation of really early animatronics. So you started to have that be like a carnival type gimmick. Automata, like automaton is the word that this book used, but like uh, what, what they, what people would do is they would buy clocks and they would take the, gears and stuff out of clocks to make automata early animatronics and that also gave a lot of people who ended up being early animators some of the skills and the artistic background they needed because it turned out that a lot of early animators were comics artists or were entertainers of some sort so yeah the the industrial revolution making art creation and the spreading of art more accessible a big driving force in early film too but I, I think one of the early figures who, the first person perhaps who can be, make the claim to be the world's first animator is a, a French inventor named Emile Reynaud. I'm, in French, French, I'm sure it sounds different, but E-M-I-L-E-R-E-Y-N-A-U-D. And um, he was a guy who was active in the, the late 19th century, the late 1800s, and his invention was the praxinoscope which is basically a projected version of the zoetrope. And he had he got a whole patent for it. He invented this really nifty thing. He made film, basically. He essentially invented the idea of film, but he made it out of leather instead of out of uh, celluloid. And basically, you, he could flick through like a loop of images, and it supported full color, and it like used light to project it out onto the screen. Um, there, there are pictures of patents of it. It's, it's pretty interesting. It basically is like a really early projector. And what's pretty cool is that um, these have actually been preserved pretty well. This is actually the first of the eight short films that I selected. That is Poor Piero from 1892. So it was one of his Praxinoscope films, if you want to call it a film. And it was 500 individually painted frames where centers around this guy trying to do like a Romeo and Juliet balcony wooing with his playing his lyre. But there's like a prankster who keeps hiding behind stuff and popping out and cock blocking him and, and ruining the moment. 
So this is something I had never heard of before. This was pretty neat. I didn't realize that animations that were still accessible predated other types of motion pictures. And certainly I hadn't heard of this leather film. Why did we ever stop making movies on skin? <laughs> we should have kept that going. I mean, it, it's like the thing that we chose might have been cheap and durable and flexible, but it also caught on fire really easily and wore down really easily. So we ended up losing all that stuff. So I feel like you could have, if you had gone the skin route, maybe you would have preserved it better than we, we did today. Maybe human skin, Brian. I don't know. Like, what if every time you made a movie, you had to slay a, a human to get the film? It's worth considering. <laughs> did you watch this one, Brian? I did. Just because it sounded really novel. Yeah. It's pretty simple, but it's cool that it's in color. Right. Because you wouldn't see color stuff for a while after this. After right. they got into proper celluloid film. Yeah, 1892. 1892. That's a long, long time ago. It's pretty insane. That's... What is that, 130 years ago? Wow. Yep. Jesus. Shortly afterwards, so when, when was the, uh, what are the name of the brothers who made the, who did the actualities? The Lumiere brothers. And they got started in 1895. So three years later, you started to have the birth of cinema proper and a lot of single reel movies being made. So all these had to be less than 15 minutes, I think. Over time, 15 minutes became the, the length of a reel. And I think a lot of the early ones were even much shorter than that. Of course, the first one you had didn't really have any special effects. It was, it was they called them actualities, just stuff in motion. But pretty quickly, you got filmmakers who were figuring out how to use special effects and, and manipulate the image in some way. And they started making what became known as trick films. There's a lot of famous trick filmmakers. Edwin S. Porter, he's an American. Uh, he made the, the first Western, Great Train Robbery, I think. And then another one was Arthur Melbourne Cooper, who brought stop motion in as part of his trick films. And then, of course, George Melies, who I feel like we got to talk about maybe in, in depth some more. But, you know, uh, one of the early fabulists and geniuses of film made the trip to the moon. And then someone who sometimes gets called the, the grandfather of animation is W.R. Booth, another English filmmaker. So my second of the eight films in animation history that I picked was another was one of these little trick films. This is from 1900, so eight years after the Praxinoscope film. And this is called The Enchanted Drawing by J. Stuart Blackton. So this one was, is pretty nifty, but it's kind, of, it's kind of in the realm of a lot of trick films that you saw at the time. So a man, he, he's drawing on a sheet of paper and he kind of interacts with the drawings like he draws a wine glass and then he reaches for the wine glass and then all of a sudden he's holding the wine glass and he draws a cartoon character with a cigar and he reaches in and he grabs the cigar and now he's holding a cigar and the man now has an angry face. So this mini subgenre has been subsequently labeled the lightning sketch animation where like a person drawing something and that drawing come to life is apparently like a popular subgenre of the trick film. Yeah. So I had not seen this one before, but I've seen similar things. I know there was like a famous Daffy duck with a similar angle that would come much later. 
but around this time, I remember a series called Out of the Inkwell. Looks like it was done by the Fleischer brothers starting in 1918, but it had characters interacting with the artist hopping out of the inkwell and being changed by the drawing of the pen. I always like this this gimmick. It's like very meta where someone making art, particularly if it's a movie, making a movie or making something and that thing comes to life within it. It's like uh, we've talked about a couple of them. Like Scream 2. Yeah, yeah. All the screams. I feel like there was one specific one. Oh, Teen Beach movie. Someone went into the movie. That's what it was. Right. But it wasn't too long before, like, proper animated films, not just special effects or, like, stuff that's within the frame, started being made. And uh, a couple of artists really started focusing on, on making these fully animated films. So the two most influential, very early, proper animated film animators. Um, one was Emile Cole, as a French guy, and he was like in an absurdist movement of European art, but he also happened to make these films. And then the second is Windsor McKay, who was also a very influential comics artist. Right, he did Little Nemo. Yeah. Um, so I picked two films from here to kind of show the growth that went on in the first two decades of the, the 1900s. The first was from 1902, so this was kind of two, this was two years after the, the trick film and ten years after the, Praxinoscope film, and this was called Phantasmagory, and according to this textbook I read, this is considered the oldest surviving fully animated film. Although, like the first five seconds, still has that thing where it shows a guy walking up and drawing it. So it really isn't fully animated, but it is after like the first five seconds. So this one was only two minutes long, and it's this... It, it reminded me of Harold and the Purple Crayon because it's, like, very simple line sketches, and it doesn't really have that much of a plot, but, like, the things kind of change shape, and the reality changes as the things that have been drawn kind of, like, reshape themselves. So it's kind of an interesting exploration of, like, the nature and the limits of animation as something where you can create whatever you envision that doesn't have to adhere to physical reality. But it it also feels like just kind of primitive and weird and out there compared to to more narrative stuff. And then the the one I picked from later was the the McKay, and this is one if you've ever read about early animation you you have possibly seen mentioned before. Uh, this is Gertie the Dinosaur from 1914. So this is 12 years after that first Phantasmagory, the first animated short, and. This is one that was popular enough and has endured in the public consciousness enough that sometimes people incorrectly call it the first animated film ever. But it might be the first masterpiece of animation ever. McKay made really interesting and really compelling uh, short little films. So, uh, Brian, have you seen Gertie the Dinosaur before? Yes. So another reason that I have a pretty good familiarity with this super old stuff is because of my public access TV show which drew heavily on public domain films and anything before 1922 at least for a long time that was the rule if it's 1922 or earlier it's public domain and that's because it had to um be 75 years after release only then in 1998 disney and some other big corporations 
lobbied Congress and they added a 20 year extension. So from 1998 to 2018, nothing new entered the public domain. And as of 2018, now each year stuff is entering again. And so we're, we're creeping up on one of these films you're going to be talking about here pretty soon. And we'll see what happens in about like three years. But as of now, stuff's entering the public domain again. But yes, I've seen Gertie the Dinosaur because I featured it as the credit sequence of Count Gauntly's Horrors from the Public Domain, episode 28, which was the dinosaur-themed episode. That was uh, back in July of 2015. So it's it's been a little while. That's awesome, yeah. Um, so Gertie the Dinosaur shows a a dinosaur like emerging from the woods. And so the premise was he actually, Windsor McKay actually had a show that he would take on the road and he would like talk to the dinosaur and it would seem like it was obeying him. But it subsequently got turned into a film that could be screened at theaters without him. So they added in intertitles and they added in an intro of him essentially explaining that premise. And it's like, it's just so much more sophisticated visually than anything else we had seen thus far. Like really incredible character animation. Like it seems like an animal actually moving. And apparently he based the movements off of his own cat, like watching him and like modeled the movements off of it. And it really, it, it, it is uh, fairly naturalistic as far as a, dinosaur cartoon from 1914 could be and so one thing is I, I have this book called the 50 greatest cartoons and it was made by a bunch of animators like this this group got together and like picked their favorites and so the top 50 ranked uh, short cartoons from animation history and this one was picked as number six in that poll um, which I thought was pretty cool those one he had to draw every single frame by hand and when you're talking 20 or 24 frames per second for like a six minute film you're talking doubt you know thousands and thousands of redrawing even if you're tracing it that's going to take forever um so the next big leap came with the concept of cells which is basically you have a transparent layer and the only thing you redraw is the thing that changes so you're not redrawing the entire frame you're just redrawing, for example, a character who is moving. Or you could be you could have the foreground be still and you could be redrawing or moving around something in the background with these transparent sheets. And so there are these two businessmen and animators named J.R. Bray and Earl Hurd who started an animation studio. And one thing I thought was kind of wild is they just patented the idea of cells. So for about 20 years, the only way that you could use cells if you were some filmmaker is to pay a licensing fee to the studio to use this technique since they had it patented. But they ended up hiring a whole bunch of animators who would go on to be like really influential in these this first 30 years or so of animation. They got the Fleischer brothers who made Betty Boop and Popeye, Paul Terry who made Mighty Mouse, and uh, Walter Lance who made Woody Woodpecker. And so the... The next short film I picked is an early cell animated film, which is called Farmer Alfalfa Sees New York. And that was actually made by Paul Terry uh, from the studio in 1916. And I, I think you're really starting to see at this point animation look like what we think of as animation, or at least like if you watch Looney Tunes or like old hand-drawn animation, what you think of, because the use of cells allows you to like 
really add a lot of detail and depth and multiple moving planes of stuff. And they could churn it out a lot faster because you only had to redraw little pieces of it at a time. So it, it's really interesting to see it kind of come into maturation and, and fruition here pretty early on. Um, and this is right around the time that the proper Hollywood studio system was forming. So it became important to churn these out because there was just this huge appetite for films in these theaters. These and and with that came the need for like franchises and recurring characters. So like a, this this late nineteen teens is when famous characters started being invented. The first of these was Felix the Cat. And so I picked a 1919 film that is uh, Feline Follies. Um, so this introduced a character that named Tom, um, who would end up becoming Felix the Cat. And according to this book I read, uh, Felix is the first iconic character created originally for animation. So prior to this, there were recurring characters, but they were based on comic strips. But Felix was the first one that was like an animated franchise. An animated character. And what you would see is that basically every other big cartoon star right around this era would be like a Felix knockoff. Some kind of indeterminable animal with black fur and a big white face. Right. Yeah. Whether it be a fox or a rabbit or a mouse. Yeah, and we'll get to, of course... Disney and Mickey Mouse here in a minute, but I think uh, there was a rabbit. Was it? What's the name of the rabbit? It's like Osmer or Oswald. something. There's Oswald. There's Foxy. Yeah. And they didn't want to be sued, but they wanted to basically ape the look and the style. But um, one interesting thing about a lot of these early shorts that I've discovered is they're they're kind of horny. I think they were mostly made for adults, but I really noticed it in this one. Uh, Tom is is he's a tomcat, of course, trying to get with a female cat and there are these mice that keep pranking him and these humans that keep like throwing stuff at him and making him angry and eventually he does get with the the woman cat and then the punchline is he comes back some time later and sees that there's a whole brood of kittens that he has to take care of so what does he do he goes and he kills himself <laughs> sticks his head on a hose and kills himself. The copy I had abruptly cut off, so I don't know if there was like a smash to credits or something there. But The, the height of hilarity. Um, one thing you'll also notice if you watch a lot from this time is the rubber hose animation style, um, which is where the characters had really bendy bodies, like kind of long tubular limbs that would get all wiggly waggly. And this was like for an exaggerated slapstick effect to like make distinct and comedic character animation. I also think of one of the early Disney shorts, which was the skeleton dance uh, as kind of an example of this style. Yep. A lot of stuff around this era. Like think of an old cartoon in your head. And this is probably the type of stuff you picture seen recently in the tribute series Cuphead yeah, I haven't played Cuphead, but re going through it this week makes me want to go and check out Cuphead. There was also like a really early Disney Disney branded game called Epic Disney, which had like Oswald the Rabbit in it and other stuff too. So 
everything we've been talking about so far has been shorts. But right around this time, like the dawn of the 1920s and the early 1920s is when some people tried to start making um, feature length animation. But it wasn't happening in the studio systems. It was happening by like individuals and mostly foreign individuals basically doing it out of works of passion, maybe very small studios. So turns out the first feature animated films ever made there were two of them made by an Argentinian animator named, who I had never heard of before this week when I was reading about it. This guy named Quirino Cristiani. Um, and apparently he also made the first ever sync sound cartoon. But everything he's made, just about everything he's made has been lost, unfortunately, in two fires from his film vaults. So we basically have no record of it. So um, even though he made the first ones, he... he they haven't survived, so we, we can't watch them anymore. So I don't think he gets as much credit as he probably would if his stuff had survived and been pre- restored and preserved the way others from this era would be. Um, and it's right around this time and in this vintage where you have like these uh, ambitious artists who kind of undertake projects on their own um, that Prince Ahmed was made in Germany, which we're going to talk about here in just a couple minutes. But back in the studio system... Um, the, the next big innovation was actually getting that noise. Get, it was, you know, talkies. He had the jazz singer. And literally, like, when he saw the jazz singer, Walt Disney said, all right, I'm making a, a cartoon version of this. And it's like, I think within days, he was working on Steamboat Willie. So this was the next short I, I uh, highlighted for this episode. So Steamboat Willie, I assume you've seen it plenty of times, Brian. You've seen it before? Yes. Yeah, I've seen it on the big screen from a projector. This is the debut of Mickey Mouse, 1928. So I believe that 1926 works entered the public domain in January of this year. Things like the original Winnie the Pooh, which means in two years, actually, Mickey Mouse is going to be public domain. Supposed to be. So we'll see what happens with that. That's wild, yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting that Mickey Mouse and Sync Sound in Hollywood animation happened in the same release. Two pretty big things, obviously. Um, The plot of this one, for anyone who hasn't seen it, and I recommend you go see it. I think it holds up. I wrote a review of it a while ago. I gave it a very good, a six out of eight. Mickey is a a mischievous steamboat worker, and uh, he causes trouble on the steamboat and at some dock, and... Um, the gimmick is, of course, there's sound. So he whistles at the beginning, which the Steamboat Bill whistle Disney still uses at the start of some of their movies. It's like their logo. And then also he gets a bunch of animals and like abuses them and whacks them with stuff and squeezes them and makes the music to Turkey in the Straw, which I think it's a very funny little short. And I think it holds up pretty well. And I think it's great that it, it... the use of sound like he really shows how sound adds depth and character to animation and that that book i mentioned that ranked the top 50 had this one at number 13 uh, on that list so sometimes you'll hear people talk about the golden age of animation and i think this is right around when you can say that that the golden age of animation started with like the launch of the disney studio proper and it also kicked off the silly symphony line which of course would ultimately inspire 
the Looney Tunes slash Merry Melodies line by Warner Brothers, which created many of studio era shorts masterpieces. So we've, we made it through cells, we made it through sound. The next and last one I'm going to talk about today is color. So uh, Disney once again led the charge on adding color to cartoons. That was another one of the ones where they got out the, the first product and get the credit for it. And uh, the way they did it is with the technology for col- any color film at the time, which was Technicolor, where you basically filmed with three strips um, I think it's red, green, blue, and we talked a little bit about it in La La Land, our, our episode then, and then you would kind of merge them, and it would create these bright, saturated colors. And so the the last of the eight shorts that I highlighted is the Disney short Flowers and Trees from 1932, which was the first ever color short, or at least the full color short, which means it had the, the three-strip Technicolor. And this is a pretty simple story. Um, there's a tree making music to woo another tree. Here we are with the horniness again, like trying to get with a tree, tree on tree action. And uh, there's, a, there's a third tree, and he's kind of a grumpy tree. Hey, nothing wrong with getting with a tree if you're a tree yourself. <laughs> That's what I always say. Yeah. <laughs> this grumpy tree starts a forest fire to basic, because he's, I guess, because he's grumpy. Um, what I like about this one, even though the story is pretty simple, is... Uh, it really shows how color can add so much character. The same way that Steamboat Willie showed how sound can add character. Um, the use of like red fire and all the colorful flowers in the forest and the water and the decaying gray and green of the villain. Just really pretty to look at. And it's been really well preserved. You can still look it up and it's, it's really pretty. So, And I think if you wanted to like dig deep into it, there's so many innovations in miniature and just like a whole saga of different great illustrators who brought in different ideas to revitalize animation in Disney in particular, but we're not in, it's not a Disney month. I I did talk about Disney's contributions here today, but uh, it's not a Disney month. So maybe in the future we can dig further into Disney's animation history, Brian, because then you're only a couple years away from Snow White when feature length animation was a real thing in the American system. 1937 was the first feature-length animated film from in the United States, and that was, of course, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But the film we're going to talk about today came 11 years before that, uh, came before the dawn of sound and animation, and that is, as mentioned, the 1926 film The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Um, so, so, Brian, what, what's your experience with The Adventures of Prince Ahmed? Well, as I briefly mentioned, this was featured in the 2010 installment of William and Mary's Global Film Festival, which is where I did my undergrad. I was taking my first film classes in 2010, and one of the professors was in charge of this festival and said, hey, extra credit if you go to an event. I was especially influenced by the trailer for the festival which just incorporated a bunch of footage from the various films set to music and i was just really intrigued by how it was edited i watched it a bunch of times and i did go to some of the events one of which was the prince Ahmed screening it was paired with a french short uh that was also animated stop motion style and it was called the lion becomes old 
which featured these anthropomorphic animals and honestly was also fairly horny. It was like <laughs> belly dancing lion women. Interesting. So that, that was stop motion. Is that right? Yes, that one was. And it was harder to dig up the title of it than Prince Ahmed. Lots of people talk about Prince Ahmed. Not as many talk about the lion becomes old. <laughs> but interestingly, this one was accompanied by this performance art musician duo called Dreamland Faces. And I think it was a guy playing accordion and a woman playing the musical saw. Whoa. Accompanying and, this, Prince Ahmed. Yes, they, they accompanied Prince Ahmed. There, there may have been a piano in the mix for Prince Ahmed because it was a little longer and they changed it up a little more. But um, when they played alongside the shorts, there was definitely some musical saw. Wow. So it was pretty cool. I never forgot it. When I watched the film for our podcast this week, though, it's not on any of the streamers. It's not on Netflix or Hulu or any of the major ones, at least. I looked it up on Roku, and it was on the free, I think, TV Time app. There's lots of weird ad-riddled apps on Roku that have a bunch of the old movies, probably unlicensed. But I, I watched it on there without English captions. So I was able to put my several years of German education to work reading the inner titles. And, and so I, I was able to understand more of it than I expected. I, I think I fared pretty well. If I ever got to a word I didn't know, I brought up my online German dictionary and I, I picked up a few new vocabulary words, but more or less, I, I got through, I think, 80% of it uh, made out okay. Very nice, yeah. Yeah, so I I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but then it got to the first title card, and it said, Gewaltig war die Macht der Afrikanischer Zauberer, <laughs> which is, powerful was the might of the African sorcerer. And so I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And, yeah. And so there were some other uh, title cards that were memorable. There was Bleib bei uns, schöner Fremdling, which is stay with us, beautiful foreigner. <laughs> and another one was Die Hexe, der Groster Feind, der Zauberer, the witch, the greatest enemy of the sorcerer. All great. People say German is an ugly language, but I would say... Those were some beautiful phrases, Brian. It's like just you, you pronounce all the letters. You don't nothing is ever silent. That and that's at least convenient, yeah. Right. So a little bit of context on this film. As mentioned, it is the third animated feature ever. And it is the oldest surviving animated feature film. So the director, uh, Charlotte Lati or Lata uh, Reiniger made it with her husband, who is another artist named Carl Cook, K-O-C-H. And uh, they were kind of like a, an artist couple doing their own things when a banker who had heard of them in like the local scene, he would just heard about film and was like, oh, this is interesting. And he went and he bought a whole bunch of film equipment. So he got like the stock that you need and camera 
And he's like, hey, I, I got this stuff and I want to make something. And I'm thinking maybe like a feature length film. I think that would be really novel. Do you want to come make it? I'll pay you to do it. Also, I'm going to need you to help out around my house and tutor my kids. And they agreed to do it. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, uh, Reiniger did the cutouts. So she was kind of the artistic vision. And Cook operated the camera and the lights. And they decided that what they were going to do is like a, a paper cutout silhouette story, um, which is kind of unusual and wasn't even like a particularly trendy thing in animation at that time. As I kind of talked about, they were already doing full scale animation with cells and stuff. So it's kind of interesting. Why did they decide to do paper cutouts? And um, I read a little bit about it and they were not typical studio animators. They were like uh, in the highbrow art scene and in Germany. And right around this time, the big thing in Germany in art was Bauhaus, which was a uh, school, uh, art school, but also like a vision of art. Very influential, embraced artistic style that kind of blended functionality of things with the aesthetics and really embraced like a clean mass production modernist style that carried over in Germany and I think still kind of does carry over in Germany. Like even when you think about how some of the early electronica artists were German, I think there's like shades of Bauhaus in that. And this kind of all went in line with the big movement in Germany in non-animated films, which was German expressionism. And Brian, I assume you've seen at least one or two German expressionist films before. Oh, Definitely. So things like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu. Yeah, those are the two main ones I've seen. I also saw this really remarkable one uh, by Fritz Long called Dr. Mabusa the Gambler. It's like four hours long, and I watched it at 1.5x because I was like, I'm not going to sit through four hours of this. But that one was kind of mind-blowing too, about this guy who's kind of like this mind control powers, and he gets involved in this whole conspiracy um, and it's just got some really cool stuff. So that's the third one you can check out sometime. Oh, man, I got to see that. Yeah, Fritz Long has some cool stuff. And it turns out that Reiniger and Cook were actually friends with expressionist filmmakers, and they got a lot of their friends to come help out and w with this. So uh, who knows who might have had their hands on this at some point, the names that we've heard of. But part of the this Bauhaus aesthetic was a low ornamentation style, so like really distinct shapes and high contrast, which you definitely see in shadow puppets. And another thing that Bauhaus embraced was the use of physical material as a component of expression. So uh, this is especially true in architecture and like architecture as art, but like not even ornate art, the very cleanliness of it being artistic. And this kind of carried through in other physical media. For example, like paper cutting is like a German pastime. Uh, I mean, probably other places had it too, but this, this thing I read said that in particular was popular with German housewives. So it's like, you know, imagine a German woman who did her chores for the day and she sits around, but rather than reading a book, she gets out one of these paper cutting things and just like makes little designs cutting through paper. Um, and it was kind of considered quaint and non-artistic as like a hobby, but Reiniger and Cook had this vision of taking this and really reclaiming it as an artistic expressive thing. And in that way, it's almost like a, a feminist thing because, you know, it was typically a housewife's activity. And here they're like elevating it to, to a piece of art. 
So basically the gist is you're, you're cutting out shapes and projecting it against light. So you, what you see is black shapes with brightly lit backgrounds, very sharp outlines, of course, because you're just seeing the solid shapes. Really interesting style. Brian, have you seen anything else that you can think of that uses the shadow puppet style? No, this is pretty unique. Although I do know that there's an East Asian culture that uses this. I don't know if it's Thai or Indonesian, but they they make similar jointed shadow puppets to this. Although I read that this is like a combination, this being Prince Ahmed, um, it's that style of shadow puppet, but then filmed frame by frame stop motion style. Whereas that is, you know, it's like a puppet show where it's people moving the sticks and this is basically doing that, but move it a bit, take a picture, move it a bit, take a picture. Right. Yeah, that that theater form that you're talking about is uh, Indonesian called Wayang Kulit. And uh, that also definitely is an influence here. If you go check those out, um, one thing you kind of see here with um, some of the characters that have like really elaborate hair, that was a big thing in that Indonesian style where you had like, garments or hair would have like a hundred thousand little circles in, in them if you, you've probably seen this before or, or things like it before if you go look up wayang kulit you'll be like oh yeah okay i know that that kind of shadow puppet style it's it's very distinct and interesting right but I, I've, I've certainly never seen a movie that looked like that right outside of this one although i remember a viral video from like the pre-YouTube internet, like back in Albino Black Sheep, E-Bombs World days when I was in middle school, there was this clip we passed around where it was some talent show, like a, a show on TV with the format of a talent show. And I, I think it was in some Asian country. I couldn't tell you which, but the performer has this like overhead projector. Like it's a clear screen that a light can shine through and cast the image up on a wall and they paint pictures with sand. And there's this like ethereal world music playing like Yanni or something. And the person shapes a design in the sand and like at a dramatic moment in the music, the picture will form together and you'll be able to tell what it is. And then they start changing feature by feature on the picture so that it just kind of gradually shifts into another tableau that it'll strike at another poignant moment in the music and that's the only other thing i've ever seen like this interesting yeah if we had a multimedia section to go along with this podcast i would link to it i'm definitely going to send it to dan in the chat maybe that's something we can do and talk about it our 100th spectacular is how we get the multimedia section going because i feel like we, we often have interesting connections but um one other connection is, if you recall, in the seventh Harry Potter movie, they read through the tale of the three brothers. And that segment is, I mean, it's computer generated, but designed in the style of a shadow puppet. And I think heavily inspired by Prince Ahmed. Like there's a character that looks kind of like the sorcerer in that one. Oh, true. I had forgotten about that. Man, it's been a long time since I watched that movie. But... Now that you say that, another thing it reminds me of is there was this indie game 
like when we were in high school, I think it was on like Xbox Arcade, but it was called Limbo. And it was a boy walking through the woods and you have to like press buttons at the right time to avoid various hazards. Like there's spiders creeping around and stuff, but it's all in this silhouette style. Oh, yeah. I, I played Limbo. I loved Limbo. I don't know if I got all the way to the end, but I, I definitely played it for a few hours. So it was really striking how reducing the amount of detail in some ways makes it more expressive and like triggers your imagination a little bit more. Yeah, the, so the way that they made this, as you were saying, is they had these planes of glass and they would make the silhouettes and move them one at a time. It took them like between two and three years to make this because they would have to like move all of these for each frame. They would have to move on multiple planes, uh, move something and keep the lights steady so they had to be careful. And it just took them forever to do it because remember you're talking, uh, I think this was 24 frames per second and it's 66 minutes. So you can do the math out there, but you're talking thousands of frames that they had to do. And eventually they started incorporating more materials for special effects. And you see this later in the film. So they used soap to create a sort of like ethereal mist-like texture that is used in the when we see the genie when we get to the Aladdin segment. Right. This especially reminded me of the sand art. Mm. And there's scenes where Ahmed and Aladdin are flying through clouds and it's it's a similar thing where there's like layers to it. There's stuff going on behind and in front of the shadow puppets with this wispy quality. One thing I liked about this is that the score. So I don't know what the version that you initially heard uh, when you saw with the live thing. I'm imagine. I'm guessing they probably came up with their own thing, or maybe didn't use the original. Who knows? But um, this composer named Wolfgang Wolfgang Zeller was a influential German film composer, and he wrote a, a score for it. But he worked really closely with Reiniger to get the score to match the film. And uh, if I was really impressed with the score. It's like, it really does. Oftentimes when I watch silent movies, which I've been doing fairly frequently, the score is just kind of there. Like it, it's, it's like they happen to play some music and it's like, it's not like you'll go from one scene to the next and the tone will change and subsequently the music will change. But this one really did do that. Uh, the The score was pretty tightly in line with, the movie itself. So I thought that was pretty impressive and pretty cool and that added a lot to the experience of watching the film. I normally don't think too much about silent scores, but this time I enjoyed it. So. so after they had made it, it took them two and a half years, they never got it properly distributed, but they showed it in various European artist circles and it was considered either lost or partially lost for a while. But um, in 1998, enough remaining prints were collected that they were able to restore a complete copy of the film and to re-brighten the tinted colors because this uses tinted colors as like the light source. So uh, we are lucky to have a preserved copy of it. And now you can buy it on DVD or you can watch it on some sketchy Roku site with ads and German <laughs> intertitles like Brian. Yep. 
it is really interesting that it was so hard to access for a while and i guess is still difficult to access compared to some movies but it's out there and can be watched which for a while was not the case right crazy that it took us over 70 years from when it was made for us to like have a version of it accessible to people you know yeah um there's a lot of stories about that about um like decades later recoveries and preservations of films um the the one for um passion of joan of arc in particular is crazy they thought that it was gone forever and the director basically reassembled it from cut takes so he had he had lost the originals but he he reassembled it from cut takes and so we had a version of it but everybody was always like it's he picked worse he, he had worse takes worst shots of of all the different scenes and and stuff so are we really watching the best version and then they eventually found a copy and the place they found it was a mental asylum apparently a copy had been sent to a mental asylum stashed in a closet who knows if they ever end up ended up watching it there and was found in good condition so we actually have a good one of that but i always love hearing stories of of the recovery of lost films i might have even told that story on the pod before yeah it's really cool when somebody is able to happen upon a reel like that. And and the flip side of that is it's kind of sad and scary how many movies we've lost that we'll never see, you know? It's like we're talking about in Destiny, the the fragility of media in the, the pre-mass media era, you know? Totally. One last thing, and then we'll dive into the plot. Uh, Reiniger and Cook, perhaps unsurprisingly from the background I gave them of being kind of in the snobby artistic circle were leftists in Germany in the early 1930s. So I think you can imagine that they might have had some political strife. And in fact, they spent several years of their lives in uh, political exile trying to get out of Germany. Eventually, they were accepted into asylum in England, where they continued to make films in this style. So they made up about 50 films in the silhouette style together with Reiniger as the director. Yeah. Ideological differences between a director like Lottie Reiniger and a director like Lenny Riefenstahl. Maybe we got to have a Lenny Riefenstahl film at some point. I want to see Olympia. He, she did a, after she did her propaganda. Well, Olympia is a propaganda film too, but yes, it is interesting. I have seen Olympia. It's a documentary of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Did you know that was the first Olympics to feature the Olympic torch? No, really? Yes. There you go. I did not know that. All right. On to the the story proper, Prince Ahmed. And one reason that I was somewhat comfortable having a lot of prelude in tonight is because I don't find fairy tale plots themselves all that interesting, so I'm going to do like a real brisk version of this plot. This is I, this is a Thousand One Nights based. I've never read the full Thousand One Nights. I've obviously seen many of the adaptations and derivations. Um, I don't know. Do you know how faithful this is to the the real One Thousand One Nights, Brian? So I have not read the original. My understanding is that it's taken many forms and is actually pretty old. I mean, the individual stories, some of them are authentically from Arabia. I think the form that we know of was put together in like the 1700s by a French guy. Huh. But 
it is an interesting compilation. I mean, it's how the Western world is familiar with a lot of tales from that part of the world. And I think it is put together from many different sources. And so, like, the original Aladdin, he's described as being Chinese, which I d I'm not sure if that comes across in this version. China does feature into the story. Mm -hmm. um, but, I don't know, Aladdin doesn't sound like a Chinese name to me. But... It's just kind of interesting. Uh, one version that I remember is there was a TV movie that the Hallmark uh, production company did in like 2000 that was a TV movie. And in that they had uh, the Aladdin segment, all Chinese actors. Wow. Interesting. The story here, it opens, we see a caliph, which we learned in our Destiny episode, is a, a king and a religious figure. And he has a son who is Prince Ahmed, the hero, and he also has a beautiful daughter. So I only saw it written. <laughs> because they don't say mm. names, I don't know how you say the names. Our professor said Dinersad. Dinersad, okay. D-I-N-A-R-S-A-D-E, Dinersad. And so they're chilling at the beginning when this African sorcerer comes up and he conjures a flying horse, which the king, the caliph, immediately covets. And the king is essentially agrees to slash is tricked into trading his daughter for the horse. Yeah, he seems a little hesitant, but that's the pitch that the Jafar guy is making. As he says, I got this robot horse and it flies. I'll trade him for your daughter. And he's like, hmm, well, let's test it first. And they have Ahmed get on. Yeah, and, and when Ahmed does hop on, he it seemed to me he was also like protesting this deal is like, no, don't sell my sister to the weirdo. But he hops on the horse nonetheless, and it takes him away. So now he can't, I guess he's not getting off the flying horse. It takes him to some foreign island called, again, I don't know how it's pronounced, W-A-K-W-A-K. -A -A it's Wack Wack or Wack Wack? Wack Wack sounds right to me. I don't know. Yeah, let's go with that. When he lands there, we're going to get our horniness here. He encounters many beautiful women who start fighting over him. But the woman that he falls for is the bathing queen named Pari Banu, who he falls in love with and abducts. Because what do you do when you fall in love with a woman, particularly a queen? You uh, abduct her. In literature, these abductions are often called rapes. So I think there's implied more than just abducting here. But she's got a magic flying cape that occasionally plays into the action and he steals the magic flying cape. Yeah, it's like she she and her handmaidens come down into this pond in the guise of birds. Like, they can actually turn into birds, but then when they're bathing, I think the title card said, Zibaden all necklick. They bathe completely naked. Uh, but they, they took the, uh, the bird feathers off, and then they're in their human forms, and then while they're doing this uh, skinny dipping, he takes the, the feathers, and then they can't be birds anymore. Classic gag. <laughs> yeah, it's like a college right. college scheme. As seen in Mulan. Not exactly, uh, but bathing shenanigans there too. But anyways, I will point out at this point, so they fall in love, and it basically never matters again that she was the queen of Wak Wak. I guess except that the demons 
are mad about her disappearing, but she doesn't want to be queen. Now she just wants to be married to Ahmed. Well, Ahmed's a prince, so presumably she's still going to have a fairly high station. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And one, she does say, hey, uh, yeah, we're, we're in love and we're together, but there are demons, and the demons are going to come after you. So just warning you up front about that. Now we cut to the sorcerer. The sorcerer, I guess, he got imprisoned by the caliph after the whole prank where the prince was taken away by the, the magic horse that he was going to buy. Right, because Jafar, well, this sorcerer, I'm going to probably call him Jafar multiple times, but he explains to the prince how to take off on the horse, but he doesn't tell him how to land. <laughs> and so he's been captured by the caliph, but he escapes, and I guess he's he's still hunting down Ahmed. I, I, can't, I don't know why he's going after Ahmed at this point, but... He, he's going after Ahmed and uh, Pari Banu. And Ahmed fights back, but he stumbles into a pit where he gets attacked by a snake. This snake was pretty cool. I kept being impressed by all the scary animals that come crawling out. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't really talked much about any of the specific scenes of the animation, but it's really cool. It's like a mix of close-up. Like when they're falling in love, we just see the two characters in frame and the action scenes... There's like the the monsters get a ton of detail and it's kind of zoomed out. And then when they're, he's just kind of wandering and traveling, it's like really zoomed out and you get really detailed nature, like trees and flowers and occasionally little animals and stuff. Um, really cool variation of the way things look. But while he's down in this pit, the sorcerer abducts Pari Banu. So the queen, former queen of Wack Wack. And now he takes her to China. So this is where China comes in, and he sells her to the emperor, who I haven't brought it up. Uh, there's a lot of racial caricature built into this kind of story. Um, you know, you Jafar, Jafar-esque characters. Right, Orientalism. But even you get, uh, uh, like, African sorcerers, too, so there's some of that. The witch is African, but we're going to get to the witch here in a minute. And the sorcerer, after selling... Paribanu flies back to where Ahmed is and traps him under a boulder. This guy's getting around. He's, he's a good traveler. Yeah, the sorcerer is pretty skilled. I mean, he's got all these gadgets. He can whip up spells. He got out of the chains like it was nothing. Like he was just going along with being in prison on a lark. Uh, one thing, though, about the Chinese emperor, this is, was a moment when I was reading the subtitles and something about German grammar is they put the verb at the very end of the sentence so occasionally what's going on will surprise you at least if you're an amateur German speaker like I am German reader uh, but the sentence was something like er nimmt die Prinzessin zum Kaiser zu verkaufen he takes her to the emperor to sell. Like, oh, wow, that took a turn. He's selling her. Okay, wow. You know, it's they, they save they save the best part for last. It's like the key. Yeah, the punchline. Put the verb at the end of the sentence. That's adventures in German verbs for you. Not clear how much time is passing, and I think in a fairy tale there there is no sense of linear time necessarily, at least as we know it. 
hell of a few days though, or however long this is for that queen. She's she's chilling with these this other ladies, taking a bath. Okay, then gets abducted, falls in love, gets abducted again, gets sold to the emperor of China, who, you know, is pretty aggressive about trying to kiss her and stuff. I feel like this would be pretty jarring, you know, wild few days for her. Yeah, there's even like another leg of the story in there where like she's not into the emperor and mm-hmm. then he's like, well, then you can marry my manservant. That's right. Yeah. And then there's this whole other dude who's not in it for very long. Um, something about the flying horse, though. I mean, when we covered Tolkien last time, we touched on just how amazing it would be to have an air force in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think it's really interesting that whether it's a horse or whether it's a flying carpet, just that this idea of aircraft was in the minds of people long before we ever figured out how to actually get it to work. For sure. And I think even the horse itself is a striking image. Uh, I just watched Nope, the Jordan Peele movie. You should watch that one, Brian. I think you'd have some thoughts on it. But one thing we learn in one of the opening scenes is that the main characters are descended from the horse rider in the famous locomotion photography of a horse running. The, the jockey is black, and so the characters claim to be the descendants of that jockey oh. and how the image of a person on a horse has been a recurring thing throughout the history of cinema. Something so poetic about it. Of course, Westerns were the biggest genre in film for, you know, 30 or 40 years during the studio system. Uh, B movie Westerns, you know, uh, the most popular or most commonly made type of film, at least. But once the astronauts went up, children only wanted to play with space toys. No sign of intelligent life anywhere. Oh, man. I love those movies so much. You've been doing the one frame of every Pixar movie, right, Brian? Yes. Yeah, there's a, so many every frame in order Facebook groups, some of which don't actually follow the rules. They just show silly frames. Yeah. But uh, this group actually seems to be going in order. So uh, a couple weeks back, I mentioned Bugs Life, and it was solely because I've been seeing this in my feed just every Pixar frame in order. So now it's almost done with Toy Story 2. Nice. Back to Ahmed. Ahmed, as you'll recall, was trapped in a rock by the sorcerer. Not in Iraq. He's under a boulder. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. That was a Arrested Development-esque tongue slip there. Solid as a rock. But just so happens a witch observes this entrapment and it also just so happens that this witch is the sworn enemy of the sorcerer so she's our new good guy pal she frees the she frees Ahmed and Ahmed says hey you know what let's uh, let's go rescue Perry Banu too in China and they do go to China Ahmed and Perry Banu escape and Things are looking good for just a moment, because then who appear? Well, the previously mentioned Chekhov's Wakwak demons, they appear. And they capture Paribanu and fly off with her. But Ahmed manages to snag one of them and rides that demon back to Wakwak 2. So 
Now he's got to go and rescue her again, but here in a different setting, back in, I guess, back in Wak Wak, her hometown. But when he gets there, it's been sealed off, so she can't, he can't get in there. There's no power, no power in the universe that can open this. I don't know if it says this. This is what I'm imagining. Oh, there's absolutely nothing in the world that could open this gate. Unless. Unless there's a nearby monster. And he's like, oh, well, that monster is harassing some boy. I think I will coincidentally help out this boy. And it turns out that this boy is Aladdin. That's right. This is an Aladdin story, too, which we haven't buried that lead. We, we've revealed that, I know. But yeah, it, it's like Robin Hood showing up in Ivanhoe. It's like the far better known character is suddenly here in this <laughs> like third act of the story. But the monster that he was entangled with, I thought was kind of cool. It's like scary Snuffleupagus. It's like this furry elephant with a very tentacle-like trunk and limbs. It's like all curled around him. Like it looks like a bush at first and then it unfolds. That was the thing that struck me was that it was like a plant and then it like came to life as a monster. It was pretty cool. And so here we get the Aladdin story in miniature over over a few minutes, which pretty much is the Aladdin story that you know. Yeah, it's like beat for beat what you would expect. Like as much improv as Robin Williams was doing in the Disney version. Like you watch this from 1926. I remember on Gauntly, I had a Popeye Aladdin from like 1950. And it's it's just really similar. It's like Jafar takes him out to the desert and says, okay, go down into the cave, bring me out the lamp. But something happens and the cave closes up and the genie comes out of the lamp. He makes his wish. Oh, genie, get me out of the cave. And it's like, wow, they really did not need to change this much over the eras. It's just a classic story, I guess. So is it actually the same sorcerer that wants him to get the lamp? Uh, in this movie specifically? Yes. I think, no, it definitely was because, um, Aladdin explains that he has the hots for Ahmed's sister. Right. And, um, remember that the guy I'm going to call Jafar, they just call him the African sorcerer. He, he finds Aladdin and he takes him to the palace first and was like, Hey, look at this princess. Isn't she hot? That's right. You can have her if... You come to the desert with me and get the treasure lamp. Right, but Aladdin does indeed end up with the lamp for himself. And so he, he uses it to to court Ahmed's sister, Din- Dinar Saad. And um, one cool effect is one of his wishes is apparently to give her a palace, to build a palace before her eyes. So we see this palace being constructed, um, which I thought was a, was a pretty cool little effect here. And... Things seem like they're going really well when things turn south for Aladdin. The princess in the palace disappear and uh, Aladdin runs off, sails away to go and try and find her and try and find the palace. And that's where we bump into Ahmed. And this is also where we get that genie effect that I mentioned, where it like uses kind of a hazy, soapy filter over the silhouettes to make it look ethereal and misty and stuff. But one thing that really struck me here is when I learned about 1001 Nights, 
one of the things I really distinctly remember about it, again, I couldn't tell you much about the actual stories in it, but uh, a key component is that there's lots of framing stories and stories within stories. In fact, The Thousand One Nights is a story of a person telling stories. Each of the nights that that person has to tell a story to, to stay alive. So I thought it was interesting. We ended up with a story within a story in this adaptation of The Thousand One Nights. Oh, good point. Yeah, she's always got to keep the story going. So there's always some kind of cliffhanger. and Right. So then now we're getting into final final battle territory. Uh, Ahmed and Aladdin realize that the sorcerer is kind of behind it all. They team up. They work with the witch. And then we get the, the epic battle. They're going to defeat the demons of Wok Wok. And they're also going to, I guess, defeat the sorcerer. Uh, although I lost track of the sorcerer during the epic battle. Because there's this really cool bit with a Hydra creature that Ahmed has to defeat. And I, I, I can't recall. I think he might have just gotten sealed up with the demons. Because the demons end up getting sealed in the boulder. I think it's the same boulder that Ahmed had been sealed up in earlier. But Ahmed and Aladdin win the day. And we get our two married couples. Ahmed marries Pari Banu, the princess from earlier, or I guess the queen. And uh, Dinar Saad, the sister of Ahmed, ends up marrying Aladdin. And the witch, who I would say is the real hero of the story. She's the one who, who took care of business. Yeah, she actually did the whole magic fight and killed the Jafar guy. Did, is that what happened? Did she kill Jafar? Yeah, so I had to back it up because it happened so fast. Like, every other part of the magic battle is more intense, and then it's just suddenly he gets, like, knocked to the side, and then everybody's like, Yay, you killed him! Gotcha. So the word Toten was definitely there in the inner titles, so... Is that killed? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and then... The flying palace appears. It, 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 I love, it's like a, a building from the sky flying down. It's like proto-space ship type stuff. Very cool. And they live in the palace happily ever after. I think the palace might fly back to their homeland or something. But again, plot detail is not particularly important. It's all about the archetypal forces at play. The iconic battles and characters. And I had a lot of fun with this one, even if I sounded a bit flippant when I was uh, recapping it. So, Brian, let's talk some good things, some not-so-good things of Prince Ahmed, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed from 1926. Sure. So this art style is really spellbinding, and I'm surprised that we didn't see more of it after this movie, but maybe it was just so time-consuming. And, I mean, as with other things in the art film world, it may not be a surprise that it didn't really trickle out into the mainstream you know this wasn't a big studio production but it is very cool the look is unique i'm completely with you i mean this is one of the coolest looking movies i've seen it's just so sustained throughout the the movie the movie's only 66 minutes but that's a long time for this really rich decadent effect and it's just always exciting and there's they're always doing really interesting stuff with it new creatures and designs, um, really detailed plants. You get a sense of depth because there's like layers to the background, even though it's silhouettes. I'm completely with you. Totally breathtaking visuals. And for me, that's really the big good. Th that's, that's the biggest good thing. 
and at 66 minutes, uh, the story moves pretty briskly. It's just all these little set pieces. There's always something happening. There's no time for for boredom or anything. So I was thoroughly enraptured. Right. A nice, concise running time. Mm-hmm. Easier to swallow than nine hours of Peter Jackson Hobbit movies. <laughs> as far as not so good things, I do think there's maybe some limitation on emotional connection and projection onto the characters um, when they're just shapes. You know, it's kind of intentionally a simplistic style brought to its limit. What's so great about the shapes? <laughs> Parks and Rec line I bring up all the time. I do think they get a lot of expressiveness out of it. So I'm kind of, you know, on both sides of that. I think it's terrific for what it is, but um, compared to like uh, cell animation, I think you just don't get as much of a sense of a personality as you do. Although you do get quite a bit. So again, cool for what it is. I also have a fairly limited appetite for like fairy tale logic and also especially like dudes just abducting queens and selling them off to just the, the stuff that might be deemed problematic. I know that's a part of ancient literature, but it did pull me out just a little bit. And, you know, it is what it is, but that maybe tempered my tempered me just just a, a hair. Any other good things or not so good things? Bro? I think I'm ready to pass judgment. All right. Oh, one question, Brian. Is this our the oldest film we've watched? It is. And actually, I was looking at the records just today, and Dan has assigned our three oldest films to date. This one from 1926, Charlie Chaplin's The Circus from 1928, and It Happened One Night, the one with Clark Gable from 1934, as I labeled it, The Love Bus. <laughs> And we had much fun at the expense of that movie for things happening over several nights, despite the title. Yeah, it takes several days, like many more apt titles they could have chosen. Although I saw someone defending that exact thing online, and their case was that everybody knew that it was specifically about those characters having sex in the pre-code era. And... That happens at the end of the movie. So the the thing that happened one night that audiences were teased with, with the title, happens in the basically the last shot of the movie. Oh, okay. Maybe. It. It. They're doing it. It happened one night. Um, one other talking point, though, Dan. Yeah. And I'm going to just interject it here, maybe somewhat randomly before we do our rating. But we didn't bring it up when we did Bedazzled. Uh, our Deal with the Devil film featured a couple weeks back. I was wondering, since this is a genie story, Dan, if you had a magic lamp, what would you wish for? Yeah, it's a good question. It's also maybe a personal question. Oh, not maybe. It is a personal question. It's like, what is your deepest desire? Look in the mirror of Erised. So for me, and, you know, I'm going to assume a good faith genie. I don't need to worry too much about quibbles. Right. But... I would wish for something along the lines of the health and thriving and comfort of me and my children and my spouse and my family to a reasonable old age. Okay, but so you get three wishes, not just one. Okay, so I gave one wish. Now it's your turn to give a wish. 
All right. So first thing I would do is put the lamp in a safe deposit box <laughs> and go out and, you know, write up my, my will and testament, except as vis-a-vis -vis wishes. Just think about for like a year, you know, like, you know, you don't have to claim the winning lottery ticket for a year. It's like you go and you put your affairs in order. So I would write out this long document, thinking through all the potential quibbles of this thing. And I'm also going to assume that we have, like, the the rules that the genie gives in Disney Aladdin. So can't bring back the dead, can't force somebody to love you. And can't kill either. Oh, that was the other one, yeah. So taking out your podcast host is off the table. So I guess it's really four rules then, is because it also says no no additional wishes beyond the three. So I guess it's really four rules that he gives. But yeah, I can't kill anybody. Um, so we'll assume that those are in place. So probably it would be Big House with the accoutrement needed to provide upkeep for the house. Probably also a, a nice car as part of that. That's probably wish number one. Fi financial stability in as much as I have a, a landed estate and a, a car. Okay. So is that is that one wish? That's That's wish one, yeah. Okay. All right, so now I guess it comes to me for wish number two. Mm-hmm. So for wish number two, I, I'm not sure precisely what the route I would get to to, to get here, but the gist of it would be um, sufficient financial independence and wealth that I can do literally whatever I want with my time. So if I want to do nothing but watch movies and write reviews... I don't need to worry about whether that impacts whether I can feed my family or that progresses my career. Or if I want to go travel for two months, then I can do that with financial responsibility. I don't want to be like Bond villain rich. Like I, I don't want to be Elon or, or Zuck here. But, you know, I think in the realm of like upper, mid to upper eight figures net worth would be the sweet spot in terms of not being on the radar for CNN, but being able to do literally whatever I want with my, my time and my uh, whims. So that would be my, you know, money. Sorry. So that's what it is. Wish two is money. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's what everybody's after. And if not money, just the stability and the freedom that it brings. That's the way our system is set up is that if people have money, they're free of a lot of the strictures Right. That, that bring you down. I don't necessarily think about it in terms of like decadent, wealthy things. Just freedom is what I think of. Right. What about you, Brian? What's your second wish? So realistically, I think once the, the house is taken care of and you got some land, I think that's a lot of the financial stability squared away. So probably okay in that regard i mean more money is never really gonna hurt unless you want to get philosophical maybe it maybe it corrupts or as you said draws too much attention but let's say i'm good on money after wish number one so so wish number two i mean i think once the house is cleared away i think probably i'll be able to deal okay i think if i got one wish from a genie and i had the time to write out the the book uh, I would probably save a wish for, like, uh, if I needed a bailout option, an escape clause, if something really went wrong, as we saw in Vedazzled. So let's say wish number three. I'm going to jump ahead. That's the escape clause. Uh, wish number two. So you can't make anybody love you. But, I mean, I feel like there's 
wormholes and loopholes. Because I mean, we saw in Aladdin, it's like, well, to be the, to marry the princess, you got to be a prince. So make me a prince. It's like become the person that she would love. And so probably there would be some tinkering in similar areas to Brendan Fraser in Bedazzled that you like try out what identity is going to win the heart of the the dream partner. Okay, so it'd be in the romance realm. Yes. Gotcha. Do you have a third wish, Dan? I do. And this one is one that I would, I'd really have to sit and think on because with this, it's one thing to just be, to have freedom to do whatever you want within the limitations of life as we know it. But if you pierce those limitations, is that really something that you want? Um, would, would I actually want this power? I don't know. But I, I, you know, I don't really fantasize about things that I want. But whenever I find my brain wandering somewhere, the thing that I keep coming back to on like, what would I do if I had this power is if I had the ability to put myself as a fly on the wall at any location at any time in history, particularly if I could like record it and share that with other people, that would be my wish. Like I would come up with a mechanism by which I could do that. Um, whether it's like a device or the thing that I always imagined is like, uh, I even thought about writing this as a story sometime. It's like, what if you got a magic USB stick that you stuck into your computer and it had a piece of software where you could type in the coordinates on earth and the time and you would essentially see it as if it were like a security film footage feed on your machine, just watching it unfold. And then you could screen capture it or, or project it or anything like that. Like you could go find all those lost movies that we were talking about, Brian. Or you could get like high def footage of famous political speeches. Or there's a bajillion things you could do with that. That's the one fantasy power that I've always fa- dreamed of having. Um, so that is what I would, I would, I don't know if I would pull the trigger because that's a lot of pressure. Like, do I want to go see who actually killed JFK and, have the FBI and CIA coming after me? I don't know. But that, and would I want the temptation to go revisit dark things, moments in my life that maybe are better, best, you know, having moved past them? Like humans are not meant to live in, in the past. Yeah, it would be powerful. I still think I would say wish number three just in reserve and never use it unless I really had to. I think there's some strategy to that, but. Superpower wise, what I think I would go with is just Minecraft creative mode. It's like you don't take fall damage. You can go up as easily as you can go left and right. And I guess Minecraft creative mode comes with infinite resources, too. So you're you're good on every front with that superpower as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you can generate materials. So that's your superpower. That's a good one. I feel like you get into like Ozymandias territory there in. Or no, who am I thinking of? One of the Watchmen. I don't know. It's like, once you have that much power, does anything have meaning anymore? Oh, yeah. Dr. Manhattan, I think you're referring to. Right, yeah. He of the Blue Dong. (laughs) Yeah. And with that, is it good? Sure. He of the Blue Dong. Yeah. Uh, So is it good, Brian? We're going to pivot back to Prince Ahmed. Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour to Good, which is an eight out of eight. 
So, Brian, is The Adventures of Prince Ahmed from 1926 good? You know, this was a nice, brisk adventure. I watched it early this morning after I finally was able to track it down. And it was just a, a light romp. It was good to revisit it. It is really visually striking. Crazy that it's almost 100 years old. I'm going to give this one a very good, a 6 out of 8 on our scale. What about you? Yeah, I'm not sure how much I conveyed this as we were talking through it, but I was pretty bowled over by this, and I am on the verge of an exceptionally good, but I, too, am going to land at a very high, very good. Upper tier, very good. Six out of eight for me as well. Just really stunning experience that holds up and is interesting and unlike anything else you've seen. It's fun to be able to experience this really distinct style. It's very pleasing to watch and and have it tell a story and do it succinctly. Some of these old films just get punishingly long. The Like I mentioned, that uh, uh, Dr. Mabusha, the gambler, that one is like four and a half hours or something. You know, less vampires, live vampire, the French serial, seven and a half hours. It's like sometimes these old films, even if they're great and they have interesting stuff going on, just not meant to be viewed in a sitting. I like that this is 66 minutes and interesting for those whole 66 minutes. I'm going to give it a very good. And, you know, I, I mentioned there were eight short films that I kind of highlighted as little snapshots into our film history. Why the hell not? I'm going to give an is it good for all eight of those right now, Brian. Here we go. Poor Piero, the 1892 Praxinoscope film. That's getting a good-ish from me. Interesting, novel, not quite good. The Enchanted Drawing from 1900, the trick film. That's getting a good from me. Very fun to watch, and I still enjoyed watching it, even, even 122 years later. Phantasmagory from 1902. That is also getting a good from me. Uh, it's, it's kind of trivial. That's the one that reminded me of Harold and the Purple Crayon. Kind of absurdist. Not much to latch on to, but very pleasing to watch for its full two minutes. Gertie the Dinosaur from 1914. Really love the animation, the way that we see the dinosaur. That's getting a very good for me. Farmer Alfalfa Sees New York from 1916. That is getting a good-ish from me. I like the cell animation and the depth it gives the the look, but the story is just very sitcom-y and cheesy. Feline Follies. The 1919 Felix the Cat prototype. That one's getting a good for me. I like seeing the goofy cat hopping around doing mischievous, horny stuff. And Steamboat Willie from 1928. As mentioned, that's a very good for me. That one I actually have a review written on the site. So thegoodsreviews.com. And last but not least, the 1932 first color short, Flowers and Trees. That one's getting a good from me. Very pleasing to look at, very simple story, but I still enjoyed watching it. So those are the eight shorts that, that I watched, and is it good I gave all of those, so. Cool. Well, I don't have ratings ready to go for those. I've seen about half of them. I have seen The Flowers and Trees, like the other silly symphonies, at least uh, most of them, are up to view on Disney+, Plus. if you got that. Yeah, I've... Uh... Revisited a lot of those. They've scrubbed out some of the racism in some of those. Right. I was going to say, if if some are particularly culturally insensitive, they may not have made the roster. But 
Yeah, there it is. Yeah, but well, well there it is. <laughs> In the words of Doctor Ian Malcolm. So Brian, thank you for for taking a tour on the birth of animation with me, and the first, the and the earliest surviving animated feature, Ventures of Prince Ahmed, which we agreed was a very good film. What are we gonna be watching next week, Brian? Oh man, I am torn. I got right up to this very moment, torn half and half of what I wanted to assign. Hmm, man, I gotta flip a coin or something. Okay, I'm gonna go with what I originally selected and not what I thought of today, but I'm gonna tell people about what I thought of today. So last week, one of our films that we covered was by Ralph Bakshi. And one of the movies that inspired Animonth as a concept was I saw a trailer for another Ralph Bakshi movie from the 70s. So I'm just all over the place here, but know that Dan is making more of an effort, as you saw from his history lesson tonight, to kind of cover all his bases. I feel like all my picks this month are going to be all clumped together. I debated working in a little more variety. I think all of my three picks are going to come to us from the 70s. But those, hey, they meet my criteria. They're not from Disney and they're from before 1990. So I'll, I'll let Dan bring the variety because my next film that I have selected is a movie by Ralph Bakshi again. It's called Wizards. And it is from the year 1977. I saw the trailer and it looked weird and late 1970s fantasy. So really not very far at all from what you got from me last week. You're going to get it again next week, but I hope that's cool because it was weird enough that I knew I wanted to see it and potentially talk about it. Very cool. I've heard of this one, never seen it. So I will be checking out Wizards. But before... We send you off entirely. The other movie I was thinking of, because, oh, I'll tell you why, was Muzzy. <laughs> now, Dan, have you ever seen Muzzy? Isn't it like a learn language after school video thing? It's a learn languages tool, yeah. And it was originally made in English to teach um, people who were learning English, and then they dubbed it over in a bunch of different languages. But the storyline... I am convinced is Aladdin. Oh, man. That's just, that's the plot, basically. But they hide it enough that it's, like, not a beat-for-beat beat adaptation. It came out in the late 80s, and I'm convinced it was influential on Disney's Aladdin. Oh, man. Watch it in your free time, Dan. Listeners, check it out if you never had it on in language class. But I had it on my mind watching an Aladdin adaptation today and also getting some language practice i didn't realize it was a distinct film i thought it was like a series of educational things but that's interesting yeah it's like a, a feature length thing with a storyline okay and everybody's like anthropomorphic animals well maybe i'll check it out at some point i'm probably gonna watch it again it's not very long i have fond middle school muzzy memories muzzy memories i feel like that's something there. You got you got something with Muzzy Memories. Maybe well, that's what the reboot will be called. That's probably what we would have called the episode that will never be. <laughs> so, But Wizards next time. All right. Sounds good, Brian. 
Join us again next time, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.